Amen. What a great, uh, great song, and what a great song for the uh, subject that we have today in our study on Acts. And, and that was a great little sneak preview of what we're going to get to appreciate and enjoy at our God and Country Day celebration on July 3rd. So uh, what a great song. How many of you have been through some rain in your life? Amen? Yeah. So uh, we can all relate to that. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 10 as we continue our walk through the early days of the church. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we're happy to provide one for you. There's a stack of Bibles out on the table in the uh, lobby there. Feel free to take one. Or if you know somebody that uh, needs a Bible or you'd like to give one uh, to somebody, feel free to take one. That's what they're there for. But we're going to be talking today about what is uh, the gospel. What is the gospel? And I want you to think about this question before we get back into Peter and Cornelius, uh, which we started talking about last week. If you knew for 100% fact that all you had to do in order to guarantee your entrance into heaven when you die was to believe something in particular, and if you further knew for 100% fact that belief in that something, whatever it is, was the only way you could get to heaven. You couldn't believe anything else to accomplish this. Only belief in, in this one thing. <clears throat> if that were the case, wouldn't you want to know precisely what that one thing was? Well, of course we would. Uh, you would search high and low for it. You would be determined to find it no matter what. You would search for it like it was the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what a man named Cornelius did back in the year 40 A.D. So the church had been around about seven years. Cornelius was a devout man. He knew there was a God. He was a Gentile. And he understood that God was the Creator. But he knew there was more to the story. And God, in his divine plan, sends Peter, as we talked about last week, to talk with <clears throat> Cornelius. Now, last week, we kind of looked at the story before the story as uh, God prepared Peter for the fact that Gentiles can come to a relationship with God the same way that Jews can, by faith. Obviously, in the first century, as the church was getting started, it was formed and born out of Judaism. By the time Christ came on the scene, Judaism had, had hundreds of years of sort of drifting away from the simplicity of faith, the same faith that Father Abraham of the Jewish people had expressed to be declared righteous before a holy God. And yet, after all those centuries, from Abraham to the time of the first century, they had sort of mixed it up a little bit. They had lost sight of the simplicity of what it takes to know God. And they had begun to think that you could come to God through some type of ritualistic man-made religion, through sacrifices and, and, and other types of religious symbols and activities, and, and they had missed the point. In fact, Jesus, during his three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, often rebuked the Jews for elevating the law above uh, simple faith. In fact, if you recall, in his first major sermon recorded in, in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gathered the crowds on the hillside and 
speaking, I believe, primarily for the benefit of the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees within the sound of his voice, reminded them that even though they might be able to proclaim that they've never murdered, uh, they've still hated, which is a violation of the law. And even though they might be able to say they've never committed adultery, they've still lusted, which makes them guilty. And he goes on to essentially, eventually say at the end of chapter 5 of Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount that, indeed, if, if they want to enter the kingdom of heaven, they have to be perfect. Not almost perfect or mostly perfect or better than most, but perfect because the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. They have to be holy, perfect, as the heavenly Father is perfect. And then right after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, uh, in Matthew's account anyway, uh, interacts with a, a Gentile who expresses faith that Jesus would be able to heal his son. And, and Jesus commends the faith of this uh, Gentile. And he says, you know what? Uh, I've not seen such great faith even in all of Israel. And you can imagine how the legalistic scribes and Pharisees who heard that might have gasped and thought, I mean, he's condemning this dirty Gentile for their faith. What about us? We dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's. And Jesus says, I've not found such great faith even in all of Israel. And then he goes on to say, Indeed, I tell you that in the kingdom, people will come from the east and the west, implication being outside of Israel, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banqueting table in the kingdom. But he goes on to say the sons of the kingdom, meaning unbelieving Israel in that context, will not get in. It's all about faith. And so the pathway to heaven boils down to one simple question. What precisely must I believe if I want to have eternal life? What is it? I mean, we understand it's by faith, but faith in what? So let's call this information what you have to believe to have eternal life. Let's call this X. Okay? So the question then is, what is X? As I said, virtually everyone in the Christian world agrees that eternal salvation comes by faith. Uh, Calvinists would say, oh, it's faith alone. But of course, they redefine what faith means. But everybody understands that faith is in the mix somewhere. But faith in what? Faith in the sacraments of Catholicism? Faith in my own ability to be good enough? Faith in my ability to keep my salvation? Or can I give it away or lose it? Faith in what, precisely? See, faith is a, in Greek and in English, a transitive verb. What that means is it requires an object. Faith does not exist in a vacuum. It must have content. In other words, you don't just believe, you believe in something. So what is the content of saving faith? What precisely must we believe in order to have eternal life? If I were to uh, uh, burst in, or let's say someone were to burst in to the back of our sanctuary with a surprise ruckus, First of all, there's about a half a dozen members of our security team that would greet them with a barrel of a gun. But let's say they come in, they're not a dangerous criminal wanting to disrupt things, but they come in and they say, can you believe it? What's the first question that would pop into your mind? 
Believe what? See, believe without any context is, is confusing, it's irrelevant, it's, it's not understandable. You have to, it has to have an object. Believe what? So the content of saving faith is the issue. And the question is, is the content of saving faith knowable? In other words, if salvation comes from believing something, is it possible for us to find out what that something is? Well, there's only two possible answers to that question, yes and no. If we say no, it's not possible to, to, to identify what a person must believe to have eternal life, well, then clearly no one could ever get saved. You, you with me? I know this is a bit granular and a bit sort of logical, but it's so critical uh, for what we're going to be talking about today as Peter interacts with Cornelius. So if you have to believe something in order to be saved and have eternal life, and you must believe that and there's nothing else that you can believe besides that, and it's impossible to know what that is, then no one could ever be saved, right? And everyone, therefore, would end up in hell. But if the answer to that question, can we know what you have to believe to be saved, is yes, then, of course, there's hope, and then it begs the obvious question, what is it? Yes, there's something you must believe, which the moment you believe it, you transfer from death to life, you're born again, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're positionally justified before a holy God, you're reconciled to God, all of those things that happen instantaneously the moment we believe that. And so we kind of would like to know what that is, wouldn't we? Because it's the only thing which, when believed, can bring eternal life. So what must we believe about Jesus? Is it simply enough to believe that Jesus exists? If a person believes that Jesus exists, are they going to heaven automatically? What about, is it enough to believe simply that he walked on water? Or that he is a Jew? Or that he's from Nazareth? Or that he had 12 disciples? Or that he turned the water into wine? In other words, there are a lot of historical realities about Jesus that people believe. What we want to know is what precisely must I believe if I want to have eternal life? It's not enough to believe that he existed. Virtually everyone believes he existed. Jesus Christ is the most historically attested human being that ever walked the face of the earth. It's not enough just to believe that he existed. Well, the Bible is crystal clear about what precisely a person has to believe in order to have eternal life. And if you've never believed this, then I'm here to tell you, you are sitting here today as an unbeliever, a lost person. You're not a Christian. If you have believed this, then I'm here to tell you, according to the authority of Scripture, you are sitting here as a believer, as a Christian, whose home is secure in heaven. So what precisely must I believe if I want to have eternal life? The Bible calls this information the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is that information which, when believed, brings eternal life. So now we have a target. We know what we're looking for. The content of saving faith has a name. It's called the gospel. The euangelion is the Greek word, or the good news. And in seeking to find out what that gospel is, we can simplify the question then by simply saying, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It all comes down to the gospel. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes it. In other words, when you believe the gospel, it brings eternal life. It brings salvation. If the gospel is so powerful that it brings eternal salvation, don't you want to know what it is? Of course we do. So what does Paul mean by the gospel? As I mentioned, it's the word euangelion. It means good news. It's used 77 times in the New Testament. It's not a technical term for that information which, when believed, brings eternal life. Sometimes it just means good news in a generic sense. Someone might come and share some good news with someone. It has nothing to do with Jesus or eternal life or salvation. But there are times when it clearly does refer to that which must be believed in order to have eternal life. And the context always determines uh, the meaning. The word gospel, euangelion, is where we get our English word evangelism. So in Greek, the upsilon, that second letter there, is often transliterated with a V. And so you can see, and then we have two gammas next to each other there in Greek. The first one is always pronounced as an N. So it would be evangelion or evangelistic, right? Or evangelism. The sharing of the good news, right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that same phrase, the power of God. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. So the good news is the power of God that brings salvation, but only when you believe it. So now let's turn our attention back to Acts chapter 10. As we continue our walk through the early days of the church, uh, again, we left off with Peter and Cornelius. God is preparing Cornelius to interact with Peter, and he was preparing Peter to interact with Cornelius. An angel independently in, interacted with both of those men. God prepared Peter's heart, uh, as we looked at last week, with the sheet full of unclean animals that God says are not unclean. What God has made clean, let no man call unclean. And Peter is... Uh, now kind of beginning to understand the relationship between law and grace. And so this week we want to kind of take a closer look at precisely what Peter told Cornelius. And again, this is the year 40 A.D., so the church is some seven years old. And this is really the beginning of the expansion of the church outside of Jerusalem into the Gentile world. So the angel of God says to Cornelius in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And he will tell you what you must do. He will tell you. I want you to notice as we go through this text this morning, the number of times that the emphasis is on words or on something spoken or on information conveyed verbally. Okay. Well, they didn't have gospel tracts back then. They didn't even have, by this time, any of the New Testament books of the Bible. The earliest New Testament book was most likely the Gospel of Matthew, even though a lot of modern critical scholars and some conservative scholars try to insist that Mark was the first gospel. I uh, strongly believe Matthew was the first gospel, as did all of church history for about 1900 years um, but I think the best evidence is that Matthew wrote first and he wrote probably around 45 AD give or take a couple years so we're in the year 40 AD so no, none of the Bible books of the New Testament have been written yet 
All you had was the apostolic teaching. You had the proclamations of the gospel from men like Peter and John, and eventually by Paul. Paul was already saved at this point. Remember, he got saved in 35 A.D., but then he spent 14 years kind of getting ready and preparing. Didn't take his first missionary journey uh, to points west until 48 A.D. So we're still well before that. But notice how often uh, the emphasis is on the spoken word. In uh, chapter 10, verse 22, Cornelius's delegates that he had sent to go find Peter are talking to Peter, and they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to what? Hear words from you. So, doctrinally speaking, Paul would later clarify some 16, 17 years later when he wrote the book of Romans, which we've already looked at a couple of verses from there. But in, in Romans uh, chapter 10, which Paul wrote in 56, 57 AD on his third missionary journey, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In fact, in that same passage, he says, how can someone believe in someone of whom they've never heard? So you have to hear before you can uh, believe. In Acts chapter 11, as I mentioned, Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin, the, uh, or not the Sanhedrin, but the church leaders in Jerusalem, and he's explaining how it was that Cornelius had gotten saved. And notice uh, he's speaking and he says, and he told us how he had seen an angel. This is Peter recounting the story of him and Cornelius. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Now, these are pretty important words, wouldn't you say? If these are words which, when heard and believed, bring eternal life instantly, that's pretty important. So we're going to zero in on verses 34 to 43 and find out what exactly Peter said to Cornelius when he got there. Peter's sermon here in Acts 10 confirms the testimony of the rest of the New Testament as to precisely what someone must believe in order to be saved. They've got to hear, understand, and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? So I think there are five essential components to the message of the gospel. And this pattern emerges whenever you see the gospel message being declared or described or spoken about in the epistles time after time after time. It's a clear theme. And the first essential is you've got to have the right object. And you wouldn't think that you'd have to clarify this, but sadly after 2,000 years of Satan blinding men's hearts to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it's amazing that, in fact, there are some apostate churches today that preach a gospel that is absent Jesus. It doesn't include Jesus as part of the good news about how to be saved. But you've got to have the right object. So, for example, do you just have to believe anything? As long as you're sincere and earnest, is believing anything good enough to get you into heaven? You know? You know, you can believe in Allah, you can believe in Buddha, you can believe in some other religion, but as long as you're sincere and earnest, you know, God's going to honor that. 
Can, can other religions be the target of your faith? What about the church? If you believe in the Holy Roman Catholic Church and keep the seven sacraments, is that faith centered on the right object? What if you're trusting in your works? See, Cornelius was a pretty moral man. He was very devout. One could easily see how he might have said, you know what? I think I'm in the upper percentile. I'm better than most. I dot my I's and cross my T's. I may not be a Jew, but I'm a pretty good guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in my own works. right? No, no. You've got to hit the target. And the target is the gospel. You have to believe exactly what the Bible says you have to believe. The right object is is critical. You know, I've been a deer hunter all my life. haven't actually hunted in for years, but grew up hunting all through high school, college, early days of my marriage. Killed a lot of deer, a lot of nice bucks, a lot some not so nice bucks that I wouldn't necessarily hang on the wall, but I killed a lot of does, eating a lot of deer sausage. And, you know, any other deer hunters or elk hunters out there today, anybody? I know you hunt deer. You hunt deer. Now, it's been a while since I've hunted, so I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me you got to hit the deer if you want to kill it. Am I right? I mean, if you, I, I never bow hunted, but if you shoot, if you, if you shoot that arrow at the deer and it misses that deer three yards to the left, is that deer going to just sit down, roll over and say, close enough, you got me? I don't think so. And the same thing is true with salvation. You've got to hit the target if you're going to be saved. People can and do believe many things in life. People believe lies. They believe deceptive presentations of spiritual truths. They are told lies and they then believe that lie thinking that's going to make them right before a holy God. But it won't. There's only one thing when believed will get you eternal life. It's got to have the right object, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Let's see what Peter said to Cornelius. He said in verse 36, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Through who? Jesus Christ. What does he mean there, peace? Peace is more than just an emotional, subjective feeling. Peace, in many contexts in the New Testament, refers to that positional peace that the Prince of Peace gives, so that those of us who are at enmity with God, that are not at peace with God, in fact, because of our sin, we're separated from God, don't have peace. In fact, I don't think I have this on the screen, but if you flip over to Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, which comes right after Acts, at least in the Bible, it's not chronologically right after Acts, but in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this as he's describing how we can be justified before a holy God, how we can be saved eternally. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, peace with God through whom also we have access by faith in this grace which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that's talking about positional peace, the once-for-all peace that makes us right with God. Now there's also a practical peace 
and in the lives of believers who have that positional peace, we ought also to experience day by day the peace that passes understanding, that practical peace where we are secure in our relationship with God, where we don't let the cares of this world bring us down. And of course, we still have that old nature and sometimes we, we don't have that practical peace. We allow the problems and stresses of life to weigh on us and we, we begin to struggle and doubt and, and, and it's, a, it's a journey. You know, it's not like the minute we get saved, we, our lives are perfect from then on until we either die or meet the Lord in the air. Uh, but that's the goal. But one thing that is absolutely certain and secure from the moment you trust Christ is that positional peace. We are made right with God. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And how does that happen? Through Jesus Christ and trust in Him. Jesus Himself said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. What's the object? Jesus. <laughs> that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Him. That's the object right there, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 6, 47, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 12, he said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to who? Myself. There's one object, Jesus Christ. Paul, in his doctrinal letter to Timothy, said it this way, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So the message of the gospel must include Jesus Christ. Any gospel presentation, any pathway to eternal life or heaven, any pathway that claims to make you right with the creator of the universe that lacks explicit reference to Jesus Christ cannot and must not be rightly considered the gospel. It's not good news. It's bad information. So the gospel must include Jesus Christ. If there's no Jesus, there's no gospel. No gospel means there's no salvation. Remember, it's only when you believe this one thing, according to Scripture, God's self-revelation to mankind, the authoritative Word of God, it's only when you believe that gospel that you can be saved. But what else does the gospel message include? Well, it has to include something about who Jesus Christ is. You cannot believe in someone whom you know absolutely nothing about, right? I mean... Uh, if someone, again, were to come in unannounced, we have no context, don't know this person, and they were to say, do you believe Bob? What's the first question that pops into your mind? Who's Bob? <laughs> right? You have no idea what they're talking about. So it's not just believing in an ambiguous, unknown name, as if that's some kind of a formula. All you have to do is say, I believe in Jesus, amen. You have no clue who Jesus is, you know. A lot of people named Jesus in the Spanish-speaking world, right? So if I believe in anybody named Jesus, am I going to heaven? Of course not. It's got to be the Jesus, and you have to know something about him. You have to know who Jesus is and what he did for us. In other words, who is Jesus, and what is it that gives him the authority to be the one to forgive sin and give me eternal life? So let's go back to Peter's sermon to Cornelius. He says, 
preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. So the first thing we notice is that Peter tells Cornelius who Jesus is. Remember, Peter already under, I mean, Cornelius already understood who God is. God's made himself manifest through nature, through conscience, through providence. But he didn't know for sure who this Jesus is. He may have heard of him. He may have even seen him, heard people talking about him. Peter goes on to say, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. In other words, Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. Not just any ordinary man, he's the God-man. And even though in this particular phrase, Peter did not, ex at least Luke doesn't record him explicitly using the phrase Son of God in this sermon to Cornelius, the name Jesus had a context in that day. Cornelius knew who Peter was talking about, and it couldn't have been clearer. He is the one with all authority, like God himself. And, of course, Jesus identified himself as God many times throughout his earthly ministry. Talking to the unbelieving Pharisees in John 8, he said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. In John 10, he said, I and my Father are one. There can be no doubt who Jesus is. The Jesus who saves is the Son of God. As John tells us at the beginning of his gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Later, uh, uh, John the Apostle records that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you remember when Jesus was talking to Martha, He told her, If you believe in Me, you will have everlasting life. John chapter 11, the context of... Uh, Lazarus' death. And notice after Jesus says to Martha, if you believe in me, you will have everlasting life, what she said. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. If we go back to our text, Peter goes on to tell, that, tell us that Jesus was not only the God-man, but that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. He says, whom they killed, this judge of the living and the dead, whom they killed by hanging on a tree, and him God raised up the third day. So the gospel message, which when believed brings eternal life, must include information about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did for us. Not just some ambiguous, meaningless name, but that he is the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. And for this reason, Paul would later, in, under the inspiration of the Spirit in his letter to 1 Corinthians, explain quite clearly the good news. He says, I declare to you the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel in ten words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So that when Peter tells Cornelius, or today when we tell someone the gospel, and we say believe in Jesus, we're saying believe in the Jesus who died for your sins, rose from the dead, and is the only one with the power and authority to give you the gift of eternal life. Going on in Romans 4, Paul says that Jesus was delivered up, crucified, because of our offenses, our sins, and was raised because of our justification. So it's not just that Jesus died, it's that he died and rose again. If you don't believe Jesus is alive, then there's not much a dead man can do for you, right? 
if you want to have eternal life, if you want to be rescued from the penalty of sin, it's going to take a living person to do that for you. And by the way, that's what separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion on planet Earth, their faith is in a dead person or a statue or a grave. Our faith is in a living Savior who conquered death, hell, and the grave and gives by the virtue of Him being the creator of the universe, Colossians 1 tells us that, the gift of eternal life. He, get, he, can, he can forgive sin. Going back to 1 Corinthians 1 where we talked about the power of God, what is the message of the cross? Remember, Paul says it's the message of the cross that is saving those who believe it. Well, the message of the cross is that Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for our sins. That's what happened on the cross. That's what happened at Calvary. It's the power of God to salvation. So, not only the right object, but it's got to re the gospel has to include the redemptive work of Calvary. So, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for our sins. Lewis Berry Chafer famously said, and, and he was the founder of Dallas Seminary, he said, preaching the gospel is telling men something about Christ and his finished work for them, which they are to believe. Notice this. The gospel has not been preached until a personal message concerning a crucified and living Savior has been presented and in a form which calls for the response of personal faith. So the Spirit of God convicts the lost person of their need for a Savior, but it takes the hearing of the gospel to trigger that and cause give people something to believe in. That's why most of the time when I speak, whether at home here at Plum Creek Chapel or across the country at conferences, when I give the gospel, I encourage people to trust in Jesus today, to trust in calling on them to trust in Him for eternal life. But there's three more, quickly, that must be a part of the gospel message. When we say, what precisely must someone believe about Jesus, it implies that they need to understand the reality of sin and its consequences. Salvation, by definition, means to rescue or deliver. That's what the Greek verb sozo means, to rescue or deliver. Interestingly enough, and maybe you've heard me say this before, but in the Greek New Testament, the word sozo, which occurs 108 times, most often, the majority of them, don't have anything to do with eternal life and being rescued from the penalty of sin. It's a common term. It could be rescued from a shipwreck or rescued from sickness or illness or danger. But in the context of the penalty of sin, it means to rescue us from hell and deliver us from that penalty uh, of sin. So uh, salvation is kind of like faith, just like you, ha you have to believe in something, it's transitive. Uh, if you're saved, you've got to be saved from something, right? And if you're going to be saved, you've got to understand saved from what? So again, if you were to walk up to a perfect stranger who doesn't know you, doesn't know the context, has no understanding of what's a, what you're about to ask, and you were to say, hey, do you want to be saved? They might look around and think, uh, from what? I mean, is there something about to fall on my head? Is there a snake about to bite my ankle? What, what do you mean, saved from what? Now, in the English evangelical world, we've become so comfortable with that term saved that we use it and assume everybody knows what we mean. We say, tell me about when you got saved. Would you like to be saved? Uh, how many people were saved at the church service yesterday? How long has it been since you were saved? And we just, we, of course, we know what we mean. But... Words always have to be defined 
in context. By the way, that familiarity with the English word saved has given us some trouble with, uh, with our interpretation of Scripture in certain places because in our English Bibles we assume every time we see saved it means eternally. Uh, not the case. Context has to determine meaning. So you, know, you have to know what you're being saved from. And of course the answer is um, the penalty of sin and you know, eternal separation from a holy God in a literal place of torment called hell. So back to Peter, he says, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. There it is. The issue at hand is sin. The issue at hand is sin. A lot of people today don't like to talk about sin. A lot of evangelical leaders and popular preachers and writers and radio hosts intentionally and admittedly avoid talking about sin. Well, I'm here to tell you on the authority of Scripture, you can't preach the gospel if you don't mention sin. Sin is the problem. Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. So you need to understand what you're being saved from. What you're being saved from. And that is the penalty of sin. Paul said there is none righteous, no, not one. In Ecclesiastes we read there's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. Sin has eternal consequences. Indeed, Paul said, if in this life only, in that same passage where he defined the gospel, the good news, it says, if in this earthly life only we have Christ, hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. You know, Jesus Christ did not take your place on the cross so that you could find meaning and purpose in this earthly life. He didn't take your place on the cross so that you could live your best life now. Jesus Christ did not die so that you could be happy and healthy and wealthy in the here and now. You know why Jesus died on the cross? To rescue you from hell. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's what the word sozo means. So Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And of course Paul said, Of whom I am chief. Christ did not come into the world and die a cruel death on the cross so that you would be happy and have a new best friend. He died to rescue you from the penalty of sin, which is eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. There are many, many, many blessings that come with knowing Christ. Some of them we've already talked about, that sense of peace that passes all understanding. Yes, it does give us more purpose and meaning in life until we die or meet the Lord in the air. But all those are peripheral issues when it comes to the cross. The primary issue of the good news is that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And those who don't place their faith in him will sadly hear these words, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. But that's not all the good news has to contain. There has to be an element of exclusivity. Exclusivity. You have to understand if you want to be saved, that Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only way. In other words, it's not like a buffet line at Luby's where you can say, well, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again, and He's one way that you can get to heaven, but so is Allah or Buddha or you know, this or that, and I'm going to choose this one. 
it's not a multiple choice question. There is an exclusivity to the gospel. God, the creator of the universe, sent his eternal son Jesus to save the world. And there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And as we saw, as we see in Peter's discussion with Cornelius, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he, and only he, who was ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. Judge the living and the dead. Again, we've looked at these verses, but in the context of exclusivity, it couldn't be more clear. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Earlier in the, in the book of Acts, in the very early days of the church, if you remember Peter and John and the man by the beautiful gate, uh, they're defending uh, the fact that he was saved. And they say, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus Christ must be the only way. Saving faith is exclusive faith. If you want to receive the free gift of eternal life, you've got to abandon your trust in anything else you think might save you. Your good works, your religion, your heritage, your baptism, and trust only in Jesus. And then finally, the gospel demands one and only one response, and that is faith alone. In other words, how is it that the gospel saves? We began the message by looking at Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who what? Believes, right? In other words, the gospel does not announce that everyone is safe because of what Jesus Christ did. That would be universalism, which the Bible clearly does not teach. As we just said, Jesus talks about someday unbelievers who didn't receive the free gift of eternal life going to hell. So the gospel is effective only for those who believe it. Let's go back one more time to Peter's sermon to Cornelius. To him, all the, that's Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, again, Romans 1.16, the, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. In fact, the Bible mentions more than 160 times in the New Testament alone that salvation is by faith alone. That's the response. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And we talked about in our midweek series that faith there is not the gift. Faith is the means of receiving the gift. The gift is salvation. Grammatically that has to be the case. So, what precisely must I believe if I want to have eternal life? Well, when faith meets the correct object, the guaranteed result is salvation every time. So, have you hit the target? Have you hit the target? People can and do believe many things in life, but there's only one thing that must be believed if you want to have eternal life. Have you believed it? That's the question. In the account in the book of Acts, we see that Cornelius did indeed believe it and his family, and he was saved. So the title of the message is, What is the Gospel? The simplest way to say it is this, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin, and he will give eternal life to everyone who trusts in him and him alone for it. So what's the takeaway? Well, we see 
we looked at a lot of passages of Scripture this morning, and a lot of them in the epistles, with Paul extrapolating upon the doctrine of salvation. But we see this played out in our primary text in Acts chapter 10. You've got to know the gospel, and you've got to believe the gospel. And then, a secondary takeaway would be, we've got to preach the gospel. Because how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, incredible account from uh, the book of Acts that you have provided for us in your inspired and infallible and inerrant word. And Lord, thank you that it seems so clear, and yet we've done such a good job of messing it up. But I thank you for the clarity of it, and I pray that you would embolden us, strengthen us, and help us to keep it clear, uh, to make it plain, uh, to teach it to others, and to rest in the security that we have of knowing that we've done the one thing your word says we must do, and therefore we can be secure in our relationship with you. And our gracious Father, we pray that if there's someone within the sound of my voice today that doesn't know you, they've never trusted in your Son and our Savior, I pray that today would be the, the day of salvation in their lives as they just, in simple childlike faith, trust Jesus to save them. And we pray all this now in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Everybody stand, please.